this was a bad week. I forgot that gravity lifts, or, uh, lifts on Wednesdays, and I hadn't tied the Land Cruiser to the tree, and so when I came out on Wednesday morning, the Land Cruiser was up in the tree above, stuck in the branches. Then on Thursday, the sun never turned on its heat, so after Nast cleaned all of our clothes, uh, then it wouldn't dry, and so we've been living in dirty clothes uh, since then. And then on, on uh, Friday, uh, we went out and did a double date with Josh and Anna, and uh, we went to this pretty cool curry place. It's a Hindu mission. You pay what you want uh, after you've eaten. And I decided that for that night, I was going to breathe through my ears and eat through my nose. And it was totally gross, and I fainted, and my head went into the bowl of curry. These are terribly silly examples. When I, when I went through this talk with my son, along the way, he just went, Really? Really? No ways. Really? Uh, you know that it's terribly silly, um, but I'm being silly for a reason. I wanted you to imagine what if, something, what if what something was and what it did were separable? What would the world be like if what something was and what it did were, were not, didn't have to remain together? If we lived in a world like this, it would be, would be absolutely chaos. We rely heavily on this principle. Uh, that what God made something to be is inseparable from what God made something to do. What God made something to be is inseparable from what God made something to do. We rely on this principle in a thousand ways every single day. Um, and we wake up not feeling the sense of chaos like the world is out of, out of order because we believe that what uh, God has made things to be, that they are going to do something um, in response to that. So today, this, this morning, we're looking at part two of the human series, and we're saying, uh, what is human made to be, is the first question, and what does uh, human, male and female, therefore do, is the second question. Genesis 1 verse 26 says, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Human was made to be God's image bearer. Uh, John Mark Homer writes that this is man's job title. In other words, if you uh, can have a door in the front of your humanity, your job title would say image bearer, image of God bearer. But then what is man's job description? Verse 28 says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Theologians call this verse or this section, they call this the cultural mandate. If we were made to be image bearers, what we are made to do is to create culture. God has made us to create culture. And in this, there are two Hebrew phrases. The first phrase is, be fruitful and increase in number. Nancy Piercy writes this about the phrase. This means to develop the social world, build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. It means to develop societies that fill the earth. 
So we get married, we have children, we raise them uh, to be humans, God meant them to be. Then we get together with other families to build a church. And then we get together with maybe churches or as a church to build schools and governments and laws and countries. In other words, we fill the earth. We continue to fill the earth with good humans as God has made us to be. But of course, you don't have to be married uh, and have children to participate in this. But if you are married and you do have children, you are doing something that is very important. If you're a mom who stays home to care for your kids, what you do is very important. I have to say that because in our culture, that role is so undermined, undervalued. You're not living parked on the runway, ready to uh, wait for your kids to leave so that your life can take off. Uh, You are at the very center of what God intends for society. What you're doing is very important. The future of our world uh, depends largely, future societies, on how well you do your current job. And so it's immensely important. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural, raw, uncut potential of earth itself. I love that. To harness the natural, raw, uncut potential of earth itself. It means take some dirt and some seed and plant some crops and prosper. It means take some bricks and some wood and build some houses and live in them. It means take metal and build a bridge, travel and unite communities. It means design computers, write codes, design programs that monitor water, map slavery, go and produce a life-transforming documentary as Chris Beattie, uh, his dad, often does for the BBC. Take sound and tones and compose beautiful music that creates awe and wonder in people's souls. Take science and biology and invent medicine. Take an entrepreneurial idea and birth a new solution into the world. Like water filtration or cheap housing, not cheap labor. Or as uh, the brothers Cadbury did, brought hot chocolate into a very cold and poor society, which we are forever grateful for. And all dentists are too. Make something of the world you're in. Make it work. Make the world work for humanity. This doesn't mean that we can destroy the environment. Harnessing the world's potential should not leave the world or others worse off. That's not okay. That's not right. The cultural mandate is huge, and it's ethical, and it's moral, and it's beneficial. Develop healthy societies all over the earth while you are developing the world's potential. I want to pause here for a moment because someone might look up and say, okay, hold on, Mark. This was fine in the garden before sin entered, but now sin and destruction have entered our world. And so how can we possibly get on with the cultural mandate? Haven't things changed? This is a good point because we see in Genesis at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 that work is now not only blessed but also cursed. Um, not work itself, but along with work, there is, there is also a curse. And so it's a great point. But listen to what God says to the Israelites from the very text that Tom was speaking from, actually, from the same chapter uh, that Tom uh, shared his word from. Here are the Israelites in captivity in Babylon, and God comes to them, and they want to know how they're going to live for God. What are they meant to do? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human in Babylon, in captivity? What does it mean to be God's people as prisoners in another nation. And God says to them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives, 
for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And Tom had this wonderful word about seek the Lord with all of your heart. Well, how do we do that? Part of how we do that is the answer is right here. We engage in building societies for the, for the good of others and the glory of God. So Israel's mandate sounds a lot like the cultural mandate in Genesis. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over creation. They, they, they mirror each other. And so sin and destruction honestly has changed the world, but it didn't change what it means to be human. So the cultural mandate is still every human's mandate, and people, especially Christians, should aim at doing it. So how does this look like on ground level? In Genesis 1, we have this up-high look at creation. There's two uh, creation narratives. Genesis 1 is way up high, big stuff. And then Genesis 2, a writer comes and puts us on the ground, the small stuff. And we go through the creation story again, but now from like a low level. Um, And so we'll look at it there. Genesis 2 verse 5 says, No shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plants had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put a man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow up out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx also are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Okay, now it's going to get pretty exciting, but you have to stay with me for about five minutes so that we can understand what God has done here. But it's pretty special. Eden means delight. Historically, it carried the meaning of fertility and paradise. The word put is nuach, and you might think, just as I did, that it's like taking a book and you put it in a shelf. It's just kind of a geographic location. God just geographically located uh, Adam and Eve in a garden called Delight. That's not at all what it means. It's far more interesting. When it's used in other parts of the Old Testament, it means rest and security and dedication of something in God's presence. So to put something means locating something in a restful and safe place in the presence of God. In the garden of delight, human was meant to work it and take care of it. So human was put in the garden of delight, a restful and safe place in the presence of God, to keep and protect it. In the garden of delight, um, sorry, we would put there something really attractive resting in the word to work it it's the the hebrew word is a voda um, and it's used other places in the old testament it's translated in other places as work or service or worship 
And so this word which we have to work, this garden of delight, a safe and secure place in the presence of God, uh, brings our lives into a seamless connection of work and service and worship. It means that whatever you do in life is service to God. It's service to others and even service to creation. And this service, if it's done for God, if it's garden-like work, is also your worship. So it means that you didn't arrive at church to worship God. It means that tomorrow you might arrive at work as service to others and service to creation, as, a, as service to God. And because it's for God and His glory, it's an act of worship. Everything we do, if it's garden-type work, can we worship? If you're a full-time mom, working hard to raise good humans, and that is hard, that's service. And if that service is for others and to God, it's worship. If you're a trash collector who works hard to make the world clean, that's service. And if that service is to God, is, for, is to others and for God, that's your worship. If you're a doctor that gives your patients the best chance at health, that's service. And if that service is for others and to God, that's worship. If you're an artist who promotes what is good and lovely and beautiful, that's a service to others. And if it's for God, it's your worship. Are you a student that's studying to qualify yourself so that you can contribute to the world in a specific, meaningful, helpful way? Well, that's service. And all of that studying is service for others. And if it's for God, all that studying is part of your worship. So what you do for work is central uh, to your service and worship. They're inseparable. If what you do cannot be service and worship to God or service to others, uh, if it's perverse or unethical or immoral or it affects others in a negative way or it destroys the environment, you have to find another way of doing it or you have to find another thing to do. You can't do that. The words take care uh, are shema, is, is one word, shema, which means to keep, to watch, or to protect. So, humans are also environmentalists who look after the world, who guard and the garden of delight. Let's pull it all together quickly. I'm going to just read this part. The human, the image bearer of God, is given the job to make culture. Human is placed in the garden of delight, a restful and safe place in the presence of God, and given work that is both service and worship to God. And part of his work is to draw out the potential of the world, to make life better and take society forward. And another part of his work is to care for and guard the environment. So now to see what God is, uh, where God is going with all of this, we need to look forward to Jesus. Uh, we've been looking at, cult at, at humans' cultural mandate from the front of, of the Bible. Now we're going to jump all the way to the very end, to the last book, Revelation, and to the very end of that. And so now we're kind of at the beginning, and now we're at the end uh, to see what's going on. And I'm just going to take snippets of what John wrote at the end of Revelation. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw a holy city. I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of Jesus through the middle of the street of that city. 
Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each season. Jesus ushers in a brand new world, and in the place where he dwells is a city where the nations gather together to glorify him. This sounds a lot like Eden, right? In other words, after Jesus was raised from the dead, Jesus went on to fulfill the cultural mandate given to Adam and Eve. His work is finished. Where Adam failed, Jesus did not. Where I failed, Jesus did not. Without being too controversial, where you failed, Jesus did not. This is incredibly liberating. Because if Jesus failed, we would all still be responsible to perfectly uh, fulfill the cultural mandate. But because Jesus has not failed, we are are not saved to be slaves uh, to a cultural mandate. We don't have to put in an effort to get things right. But when Jesus saved us, Jesus has not only given us his righteous record for our past sins and given us forgiveness, he also brought us forward into our cultural mandate. So when Jesus saves us, he doesn't only change what, who we are. He doesn't only change that we are forgiven, where we live. He doesn't only change that we are children of God. He changes what we do. He puts us back in a place of potential. Otherwise... And you know at least one or two, if you're not one yourself, Christians who get saved and then we're just waiting for heaven. I got saved. I got my ticket to the big show. Now I'm just waiting. In the meantime, I'm just doing my thing. I go to work. I have a family. Or I'm dating this guy. Or I'm studying this thing. It's not at all connected to our faith. I've got the ticket. I'm waiting for the show. Jesus not only changes who you are, he changes what you do. So we brought back into a space of being something new, forgiven and adopted, and a space of doing something new, following Jesus in the cultural mandate of doing others, the world, good as service uh, to them and God as acts of worship. So we, enge- so we engage in culture making because Jesus is making all things new. Because though, uh, through Jesus, we are becoming fully human again. And that's what human does. So Jesus is remaking us into full image bearers. It's like he's found this coin that has no value because it's so marred. And he's taken his own blood and paid for that coin with his own blood and he's washed it off until the image has become clear again and it now holds its old value again. It's back to being purposeful. And by the blood of Jesus, he has washed us to make us new again that we can be used as God intends. Listen to what Paul says in Acts at the end of a sermon. From one man, Adam, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He determined where and when they should live. God determined where and when every human should live on the face of the earth. He has marked off our boundaries. That means that God has put Newark, That same beautiful word about Adam and Eve put into the Garden of Delight. God has put you in this time and space. God has put you in a restful and secure place in the presence of God from which you can care and God for your environment. 
This is your secure and safe place in the presence of God from which you can care in God for your environment. I don't mean this as in these four walls as beautiful as they are. I mean this, this world, this nation, this city, this suburb, this church, this life, this being. In other words, through Jesus being new creations, we receive the cultural mandate again. Not because we can save ourselves or this planet, but because Jesus has not failed. God has intended us to partner with him in ruling uh, in this planet in life-giving ways to make something of our world. So every human is made in the image of God, but we know that as image bearers we failed um, in our mandate. So through faith in Jesus, Jesus has made us to be image bearers again. And that means we can do what image bearers do. Listen to Paul talking to the Colossians. He's telling them a whole bunch of, he goes like, don't sin anymore. Stop it. Stop sinning in these ways. And then listen to how he ends it. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. You, 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 you weren't living as human was made to, but through Jesus, you've taken that old self off. And have put on a new self which has been renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. The word renewed is anakanoa. And it is used twice in the New Testament. And both times it means God's ongoing work in human to change them into something new again. So what is God changing man into? Paul says, the image of the creator. We were made in the image of God. It was marred, but through faith in Jesus, we are being renewed into the image of our creator. Image means more than just to look like something. Over here, that word means, it means to be pulled out of it, to have the quality, the character, the nature of it, uh, not just to reflect it, but to replicate it. If we could, we, I, don't, I mean, this is a fairly, like, this is an f- ethical uh, example. Don't, don't go down the train too much. But if we could just clone people, if we could pull out of them their quality and nature and character, and if we could replicate them, this is the type of picture we see as image bearers, that there's the quality, the character, and the nature of God in these renewed creations that replicate the life of Jesus. Why? Not because we are Jesus, but Paul says because Christ is in us. So Paul is saying through Jesus, God is transforming human again into the quality, character, nature of himself, the creator. So the language in Genesis is, let us make man in our image. And then the language in the New Testament is, let us renew man into our image. Let us make man in our image. Let us, through Jesus, renew man in our image. That is so beautiful and wonderful. Listen to what Paul says. He goes, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of of, uh, the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God our Father through him. There, Paul's brought it all the way home. He's taken us to where Van Dronen started us at the beginning. What God has made something to be is inseparable from what God has made it to do. God is renewing us in the creation, uh, in the image of the creator, so that what? Paul goes, so that 
every single thing you do can be unto the Lord. Which is what? It means that everything we do is service and worship to God. Now Paul is bringing us back. God has renewed us to be image bearers. And as image bearers, God has renewed us to do all of life through Jesus. That means that we are partners with God. We spoke about that last week. Spoke about partnering with God in doing this world good. And we are renewed to rule in life-giving ways, to make something of this world as we work and as we rest. So, if you're a mother raising kids, you're not just um, a parent. You're an image bearer, busy being formed into the quality and character and nature of Jesus to partner with God, being fruitful and increasing in number, just as God said, raising kids who know and love Jesus. This is service to others. And if it's done for God, it's your act of worship. If you're a teacher, and I know we have a bunch of them, you're not just a teacher, you're an image bearer. Busy being formed into the quality, the character, and the nature of Jesus to partner with God. Being fruitful and increasing in number, training the next generation of culture makers. This is your service to others. And if it's done for God, It's your act of worship. If you build houses, and I know we have some in construction, you're not just a builder, you're an image bearer, busy being formed into the quality, the character, and the nature of Jesus. To partner with God by being fruitful and increasing in number, you are woven into the tapestry of humanity and making places for people to live, to raise kids, to dream dreams. This service is for others, and if it's done for God, It's an act of worship. Through faith in Jesus, you are human, fully human, the image bearer of God, given the job to make culture again. He has placed you in the garden of delight. I mean, how much do you love this place? Don't you love Lucy's painting? She can explain it to us another day again. But he's placed you into a garden of delight, a restful and safe place in the presence of God. By the Holy Spirit who is in you and me if your faith is in Jesus Christ. God has given you work that is both service and worship. And part of your work is to draw out the potential from the world and to make life better and take society forward. Another part of your work is to care for and to guard the environment. This is the part where someone might say, Mark, this is a little bit unreal because in 90% of the world, people don't get to choose what they do. They don't get to choose what to eat. They don't get to choose education. For 90% of the world, they hope for all those things. For 90% of the world, just having a job is a blessing. But I think because that's what 90% of the world lives like, you owe it to them to give it a go, to find God's dream and purpose Because what is it going to look like if it's God and if God has designed our work to be service to others and if 90% of the world struggles in uh, suffering with poverty and lack of food and lack of identity, lack of housing, lack of education, then surely God is going to put it into your heart to dream a little dream, to go and do something that is an act of service that goes into those parts of our world and lifts their heads. 
and changes their environments. God is not about serving our dreams. He's not about giving in to um, consumerism. But if we're hearing God and if we're dreaming His dreams, He will get us to do things that excite us and delight us, that we can wake up and say, I was made for this. That in one way or another, make the world better. And so we don't have to be scared or think it's selfish to dream a dream. If anything, dreaming God's dreams are the most unselfish thing you can do. And people all over the world need us to risk trusting God with the opportunities that we have before us. This is what I say to the world in closing. Today is a good day because Christ followers are coming to you. And they're going to partner with God in doing you good for His glory. Amen.